0: So, Matt, welcome. Thank you very much for agreeing to be the first ever guest on the fundraising diaries, page number one. The purpose of the podcast is to give people an insight into the fundraising process. A lot of our clients and community are are thinking about raising funds in the process of raising funds, going to need to raise funds very shortly. And so, the purpose of this is really to give them insights into the process of raising funds from both sides, how to improve their chances, improve their outcomes throughout the process from from business plan stage all the way through. We as a firm help companies pretty much from incorporation all the way through to exit, and that's always been our our strategy. And so, some of the people who are listening to this will be first time entrepreneurs with an idea in their pocket, thinking about you know how to get off how to get off the ground, working out where to find their first. 20,000 pounds to you know, build a website and to get some business cards and all those other things that you don't need to do at the beginning with seed stage capital. And then there'll be seed stage entrepreneurs, people who've raised series A and are looking at going beyond that. And we may even have some people sort of in the later stages. So there's quite a broad spectrum to cover and I'm sure you're the person to do that. Having seen companies through a lot of those phases, I think it would be it's gonna be interesting to, to hear about your experience as an investor and now raising funds. So before we move on, maybe you could just introduce yourself quickly to people we're listening and tell us a little bit about your background and, and what you're about to get up to. Yeah, great.
1: Well, James, thank you very much for having me. Honored to be guest number one on the uh the side of the... Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure. So thank you for having me. So just quickly on me, uh, I'm an experienced VC and angel investor. I've led well over 20 investments into early stage tech businesses in my previous capacity as a chief investment officer and chief financial officer of Forward partner. And obviously uh, with the associated non-exec experience on those rapidly scaling startups and and scale up, we also as a fund, uh, IPO, or I shouldn't say we, uh, it's quite difficult these days because I've only just moved, moved on. So I'm still sort of in my mind saying we. So Formal Partners did an IPO last year and I was the CFO for, uh, for a year or so running up to that. And over that period of time, which was you know an amazing bit of experience, which perhaps might be relevant for, for some of your listeners. And then in the last few weeks, actually, I've moved on to, to my new venture, which is looking to fundraise and set up funds to make majority investments into into businesses so uh, venture capital typically you are you're making minority investments into tech companies but whereas i've moved on to, to look to make majority investments into businesses which are likely in markets which are deemed sub vc scale whatever that means and mm-hmm. potentially we'll get into that as well and to end up to not only acquire that majority state but provide those businesses with greater capital because i think this is a you know an area which is largely ignored by the investment community at the moment, and, and for
0: increasingly no good reason. Fantastic. Um, yeah, we'll definitely come back to that in a little bit. Just before we move on, part of the purpose of this is to give people who are looking to raise funds and people in our community a better insight into you know, how, how VCs and fund uh, capital allocators work, and you know create a little bit more empathy in the in the process for people who are setting out on their first steps on on fundraising. So, as a proceed to that, would you just give a little background about where you started before you worked at Ford Partners, what led you towards VC, You know, what were the skills that you had that you you thought you could apply and, and why you ended up in VC at all?
1: Yeah, sure. So going right back to the beginning, I started off doing a, a, as, as a sort of intern graduate scheme at, at investment banks in the city. And so I was at Lloyd's in Barclays for, for a period of about five years and, and then moved on to business school. When well, I moved on to business school, I set up my own company, which is an eyewear business, as well as invested some of the money that I had been saved into a couple of science led startups, which I found just by going around science fairs, actually, which is quite a. Uh, it's not actually that strange as an origination strategy, but a particularly thorough one let's say and, and then he got out of business school so I was doing all that kind of stuff while I was at business school and then maybe about a year after business school those activities came to a head you know some, some went well some went badly but there wasn't enough sort of keeping me sort of interested in my own portfolio which is the time at which I decided right I should probably look for something to do full time now and venture capital turned out to be this kind of thing that was most was most attractive and, and potentially the best match for, for what I've been up to because if you think about what I had been doing is that I had been doing, I, I'd been being an entrepreneur and, and setting up a business and also been investing in other businesses and I had this sort of general sort of financial background as well as, you know, a recent MBA. And so, you know, all of that is is, is just quite general, generalist experience. And and I thought, right, okay, so I, I think I'm quite good across a number of sort of qualitative to quantitative things. I'm really interested in technology and entrepreneurship what's what's a good match for that and venture capital seemed to be seemed to be the answer and and the way in which i thought about going about getting a job and approaching venture capitalists is as i as i started to sort of understand a little bit more of the market i wanted to sort of be at a fund which was more differentiated than the average because there were a lot of, of very similar looking funds around and, and certainly at the time Ford
0: partners was was you know, a highly differentiated fund okay so you were kind of a banker with mba with an MBA and an entrepreneurial itch that was larger than your kind of existing portfolio, is that is that a fair summary of the of the position? And four partners gave you you know opportunity to leverage a fund to to look at you know a, a larger number of businesses more quickly than you might have done if you were on on your own. Yeah, uh, I
1: think that's I think
0: that's just about
1: fair. I, I'd take Umbridge with the word banker.
0: Okay. Um, I, I, I was, this i with spreadsheets that always confuses <laughs> me. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I i, I always I always quite like the idea that because I because I wasn't on the private side doing the banking stuff rather on the market side.
0: So tell me about Four Partners differentiated. You've seen Four Partners through quite a lot of stages of its development. When you joined there was one fund, now there are three funds and this change to the PLC structure and you were the CFO during the change to the PLC structure as well as being the CIO, the chief investment officer, which feels like two quite competing and different day jobs, I should imagine. And and so you've seen the the sort of the growth of that, alongside the growth of your own career in VC, what, what tell us? Tell me a bit about forward. Why it's differentiated? What attracted you to it? And yeah,
1: but yeah. So forward partners, when I when I joined, and, and I suppose for for everyone listening, it's it's useful to sort of cast your. Cross your mind back ten years to where tech investing in in Europe and and in London was was a tenth of the size of what it is now, and and as a result, that the market looked a little a little different. There were far fewer operators around. There were far fewer sort of investors. There were far fewer fewer sort of hubs for knowledge, and the internet itself was not nearly as efficient as it is now in terms of helping people to find other people and helping people to find knowledge and and the rest of it. Um, so it was a little bit uh, more disjointed than it was today. And forward partners, the really interesting bit of differentiation was the fact that it was an early stage fund, but it came alongside a team of operators which were on the the fund's uh, payroll to help really early stage businesses get going faster. And because of the the ecosystem and the market at the time, where, like I say, it was a little bit disjointed, there were sort of bigger asymmetries of information than there are now. I think that that, that was a really a really meaningful source of differentiation and, and a good way to sort of attract good deal flow ultimately. And uh, yeah, I suppose it, It's it's important to talk about this alongside the various different sort of fund strategies because you quite rightly mentioned the fact that there are three funds or or two funds and then then we went public and, and raised some more money, which is an effective third fund, if you like. But in the first fund, we were predominantly a sort of did it again, we forward partners was predominantly a it was predominantly a consumer business and marketplace investor. Fund two was we did a little bit of consumer And did a little bit of consumer, did marketplaces, but did a lot more B2B software, more sort of standard venture capital investing and made sure that they, all of those businesses had some element of sort of applied AI in them. And then, as as Fund Three is progressing again, the skew towards more sort of B two B companies, I think, is is still alive and well. And and you've got a number of different things that venture capitalists are particularly interested in at the moment, which is you know the the development of, of the web into Web Three and, and things like that, which people are focusing on a little bit more. So
0: the focuses
1: ha- have evolved, and 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 with it, a sort of the relevance of various different points of differentiation have evolved too.
0: Yeah, and so people you, you you mentioned briefly deal flow obviously a lot of it in the vc world is inbound i presume from people firing their decks to you and you've stopped going to science fairs to find new opportunities so is that the what was the bulk of an investor at a vc fund day to day is it sifting through through decks looking after existing portfolio companies attending board meetings how, how does this sort of time divide itself up
1: Yeah, gosh, uh, good and big question. So uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that it it depends what kind of venture capital firm you're talking about and indeed what stage. So later stage investors have fewer opportunities to look at versus earlier stage investors. And so we'll be spending more time on any given piece of analysis or with any given portfolio company because they have fewer businesses to look at and fewer businesses to focus on. And and also some firms are set up in, in, in a different way. So you have uh, and this is this is a sort of interesting point for some of the entrepreneurs on the call listening as to what type of firm are you are you looking to raise money from, or are you talking to at this point in time because some firms are quite sort of hierarchical and top down and and perhaps still quite old school in the way that they have you know managing partners and partners, and then they have levels of but whatever they want to call them, you know, principals or investment directors and investment associates or investment managers and, and analysts and the rest of it. Whereas other funds are are very much sort of the, the sort of white glove approach, if you like. So if you think about benchmark in, in the US or, or indeed local globe here in London, they are predominantly organisations of partners who can do their own deals and focus on their own deal flow specifically. in In those models, they're much likely much less likely to be looking for a sort of scale deal flow. If you have a hierarchical organization, you can you can have various different sort of specialisms, if you like, at the various different sort of levels in the hierarchy. So if you've got analysts or or, or juniors on the team, you can sort of afford to really crank the deal flow and get look to get hundreds or thousands of leads in and get through them get through them at sort of Pretty quick pace throughout the course of the year. And then the game is having, I don't know, 5,000 leads for for argument's sake, and only sort of meeting maybe 500 of them, and then only spending a lot of time on. 150 to 200 of them, and they getting serious with, you know, some small tens of them. And, you know, as you get through that pipeline, you spend more and more time with more and more senior people. And certainly forward Partners is, is more that sort of hierarchical model. But like I say, I mean, it, 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 your experience can be totally different depending on what type of venture capital firm you're you're, you're talking to and you're raising money from.
0: That makes sense. And so if you're, so of the 20 deals that you said you did about 20 deals while you were, you led about 20 investments while you were at Ford, how did those come about? What, what was the sort of process? What, if there's an average or a typical deal amongst those, how did they get in front of you and get you to the point where, you know, you were ready to invest or at least take it to investment committee for the funder?
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, a variety. It's a good question. I haven't looked back to it with that lens for a little while. But, you know, I think the, the answer is probably quite unremarkable. It's well known that cold inbound leads have got the least the least possibility for conversion into an investment. And that's for lots of, lots of good reasons, as well as lots of sort of weird human bias reasons as well. I think the vast majority will have been referrals from our network one way or another. So that is our own portfolio, other investors, perhaps people that we trust in the ecosystem. And then, you know, a couple... Probably look a little bit more similar to sort of outbound type activities Uh you have known entrepreneurs or operators and, and been close to them for a while, and have been somewhat close to them as they've as they've gone through the process of sort of creating their company, and and then it was definitely you know maybe two or three in there which 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 that was created by. But I'd say you know the, the majority, at uh, one way or another. Uh, were, were coming from referrals and then a really interesting minority coming from where I was very, very close with with some of the people who started up the business and was, you know, somewhat kept appraised during the sort of the thinking time before they actually pushed the pushed the red button. And then, you know, a, a real minority of, of cold inbounds and things where I had less of a sort of warm introduction to.
0: Okay. And a warm introduction is someone in your network says, Matt, you should meet with this person or is that is that, you know, and, and talk about their idea, it sounds interesting, might be a fit for you? Is that, is that the kind of thing you're looking at?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, like, in, in my mind, I'm not, like, thinking of warm instructions being, like, a friend who I really, really trust. I'm, I'm sort of just making a sort of general distinction between uh, warm and cold, which is something which is just totally new to me coming from a source that I don't know in any kind of way. And then warm is, is something which has been recommended to me by someone that I do know, and trust in some kind of way and you know that could be you know someone who who uh, perhaps even has a little bit of skin in the game for for getting that person in front of me but you know still i know them and trust them so i wouldn't necessarily say that just because you're part of a, a large accelerator platform i'm in my mind thinking that that's that's a, a cold source that's somewhere in between the two
0: sure and then when it comes to filling around so there's a you, you know you forward leads the investment and you've got you know it's a one and a half billion round and you've got five hundred thousand left to fill or whatever do you that do you was it your experience that you would go to other vcs and and see if they're you know try and sort of encourage people that you thought would be good co-investors in that particular transaction to come in and is that as part of the the vc role and value add or or is it down to, mm. entrepreneurs to kind of fill the gap
1: so you know, I, I think that's another thing which depends greatly on the investor that you're actually raising from. So a bunch of venture capital firms are, are kind of greedy and they want all of the allocation that they can possibly have and they're happy being more, more or less the only person in the deal. And for sure, you know, venture capital firms make money off their stakes being sold at some point in the future. And if you've got a bigger stake in a company that exits strongly, that's better than having a smaller stake that's obvious to say but it's true and, and so for partners was was definitely you know more on that side of things you know we we wanted strong strong ownership stakes in in the companies that that we built conviction around other investors are are very much more sort of ecosystem driven and have regular uh, co-investment partners with with various different funds and and share deals in a in a very sort of cozy way. And indeed, you know, some early stage funds have got you know big big bases of LPs who are interested in making angel checks into businesses as well. So we're frequently investing alongside you know some numbers, maybe even tens of of familiar angels, which which they're you know co-invest alongside many times over. So yeah, there's a range of different approaches. And again, you know, it, it's useful to know as an entrepreneur or to do a little bit of research to understand, you know, what what type of business you're looking at. One thing which I would say is that um these days, while the financial world world is melting around us or inflating around us, some one phenomenon in the market is that I I think, you know, a lot of investors are being a little bit less free flowing with their investments. And so, I think what you'll find is those investments that do get done. There'll be more co-investments going on where people don't, you know, take you know the whole round allocation because it's quite nice to have other people ultimately sharing the risk, but also sharing the the responsibility or, or the burden, depending on how you look at it, of keeping that company funded going forward as well.
0: Yeah, and we'll move on in a second because to to your next venture. But I think one thing to cover that would be. Really interesting is just your briefly your experience of the ipo process you know obviously a lot of people raising funds have one eye even if it's far in the over the horizon on on an exit of some kind and ipos are probably the least i would say that they feel like the less common less sexy option at the moment for a lot of a lot of tech businesses who are either seem to be staying private longer or or just looking to to exit completely but but I think the iPO process is is quite a unique experience I've been on involved in public companies in in my in previous jobs and you know from a lawyer's perspective it's certainly a very document heavy regime process and so it would be great just to hear a little bit about your experience as CFO of board as it went through the aim process and how that distracted from your day to day which I'm sure it did <laughs>
1: uh yes, yeah one of the things which I have said a few times is that doing an IPO in an executive capacity, you know, as as a sort of executive officer, as a business versus a non-exec that most VCs are in their investments is, is obviously a very different thing because you're actually doing the work. And so uh, versus a lot of VCs who, who might well have been involved in IPO processes in a non executive capacity, I now feel as though because I've done it, I've actually done the work, I can, I can uh, advise with wholeheartedly and 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 with my head too that don't do an IPO unless you really 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 want to because it's incredibly disruptive. You know, there's the work to do an IPO, and and to be clear, we were in we were listing on AIM, so this wasn't even you know, the the degree of work that you would need to do for for the main the main market. But yeah, the disruption is is and it really requires a huge amount of attention for a number of months, perhaps even for a year depending on how organised you, you are and, and you want to be about it, which which diverts a lot of attention from, from, from the bed and bread and butter of the business. So you've got to, as a business owner, make a call as to whether that's ultimately worth it or otherwise. But it, thinking about the work itself, there's, there's nothing overly complicated about the work there's just a lot of it and in fact a lot of it is incredibly boring and you've just got to kind of chew through a lot of procedural stuff you know I think in some odd way the most interesting parts of the work is are the most stressful parts that the parts where you get truly challenged and asked questions on so you know for a venture capital fund listing that is the valuations of their holdings. And of course, that's quite stressful to to have lots of people poking and asking asking questions about that, and um, because it, it matters a great deal in terms of you know your listing price and what you've told the investors leading up to that point and and that kind of stuff. Nonetheless, easily the most interesting part of it because it was the part that we were really sort of you know using our brains and 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 yeah, I I really enjoyed those kind of conversations actually. So so yeah, so relatively few interesting parts just a lot of work and you just need to make sure that you you, you really want to do it and that your company is, is in the right place to do it and then you know one thing which you mentioned before is, is you know how, how how do people at venture capital funds spend their time well because you know i was also leading the investment team at that point in time you know my time for a long for, for the year in the run-up to the ipo looked a little bit like people management I had, I think, anywhere uh, like ten, eleven, maybe board seats at the time. So board seats and portfolio management, IPO work, and then you know I had like precious little time uh, to do much else. But you know, on the investment side, looking at new investments and and, and the like. So that's roughly what my, what my what my weeks and and weekends looked like for a while.
0: <laughs> yeah, and just finally on that point, do you think that there's a small but significant trend towards these alternative? structures for for funds that sort of plc in particular and there's a few there's a handful of them that at least that i could think of now which are some are listed some are not but you know by being a plc they're kind of indicating that that's the direction that they're ready to go in when the time if and when the time is right do you think that from a a portfolio company perspective there's a difference in experience or or even outcome of, of being taking investment from a a different structure to a traditional fund structure or do we not even do we not know necessarily at, at this point
1: no i think i think we do know and i i think long story short it doesn't really make that much difference um one thing a couple of things to bear in mind is that if you're a public company you have to report to the market material moves now the the definition of materiality will depend upon loads of different things but so if you, are, if you know that you're one of the biggest assets in a VC portfolio, you, as a result, will know that any material moves to the upside or downside will have to be reported in some kind of way. Now, that, that's not to say that they need to be reported by name or anything like that. But as I said, at the fund level or, or at the PLC level, the PLC will need to report large moves. And so, if you're one of the big assets, you're going to be one of the things which will be able to create material moves. And so, there will potentially be information out there which, if someone was really clever, could maybe, in some way, find a way to 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 realise that it might be about you or about your company. But you know, I don't think that that's, as I said, like an overly material thing. And and one of the things for me personally, again, like more in my capacity as CIO. I was you know maniacally through the process and up until the point at which I left, focused on like we can't have information out there about companies that we don't want the companies not to be happy with. We can't be out there ultimately I suppose uh, being being an investor where we were looking looking after ourselves first, like our our job as an investor was to look after our portfolio companies and to make sure that you know the the confidentiality which they may want or need is preserved and again like as a portfolio company you can you can sort of stress that point and you can sort of understand who you're working with and, and for me like i said that was a that was a really you know big point which i which i ran down as many people's throats as i possibly could on a regular basis
0: yeah fair enough okay cool so you've left recently left four partners hence the uh change from we to for partners and you're starting a new venture in which you will be both raising funds and deploying funds so tell me a little bit more about about TikTok. Right. That? yes yeah, yeah it's it's called take tech capital we're,
1: we're a company and it's got websites and everything I mentioned at the at the beginning of the the call that the venture capital has grown like roughly 10 times the London ecosystem and the capital in it has grown 10 times in the last 10 years which is which is great you know it speaks to you know very health healthy market and and, and tech ecosystem and, and the growth there but I think one of the interesting things about tech investing Is that the only game in town is venture capital. And that game is raising a fund, investing in 20 to 30 businesses, and hoping that two, three, maybe four or five, if you're lucky, of those businesses that you've invested in get really, really big and you make loads of returns from them. And then the rest of the things in your portfolio either go to zero or, or you know, don't really sort of produce the kind of returns that's that interesting to, to the venture capital firm nor their investors. So, so in some ways, it's quite wasteful. And But yet, venture capital is the tech investing game. But as the amount of capital in the ecosystem has grown, the outcomes that venture capital firms require are bigger and bigger and bigger. And so as a result, fewer markets are being funded. And there are great businesses in these markets, and companies that have already found product market fits to some extent, who really struggle to raise any kind of growth capital. And yet, they're in these great markets, where digital transition is still very much a thing. And, and they can't find any capital to, to actually sort of get themselves to a level of growth that tech business models and, and products can yield which is i think a phenomenal opportunity ultimately as as an investor but also you know really a really interesting one where you know you can bring the best of venture capital growth thinking as well as sort of private equity thinking about profitability to to bear in these in these companies operating in in inverted commerce sub vc scale markets and look to look to grow these companies, and and look to to get them to a point where you know, they've got probably you know some small number of millions on the bottom line. Fantastic. So, where
0: what are you doing to kind of originate your initial deals for this? Because obviously, Dicto is a new venture. You don't necessarily have a lot of inbound inquiries, I would presume. So, are you back out in the science fairs looking for looking for opportunities, what's the uh, What's the strategy for, for finding deals?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. You know, the, the venture capital firehose is still very much there. You'd, you'd be surprised at how much inbound we do get through the website. <laughs> right. um, or at least I have been surprised at how much inbound we get through the website. Yeah, but, but you know, I, I think, you know, building deal flow is, is not, it's not rocket science. So, again, we have a, a large personal network of again investors and operators you know there are hundreds of companies which are theoretically businesses which uh, we might be interested in talking to within venture capital portfolios themselves, to which, you know, obviously we're, we're sort of well connected with, where that's a, a good source of deal flow. There are all sorts of business broking platforms, actually, with people looking to looking to sell majority stakes in, in businesses and, and sell businesses for, for all sorts of different reasons. And beyond that as well, because I suppose I mentioned the information asymmetries 10 years ago in the venture capital market. Well, in in these slightly smaller markets, those information asymmetries still exist and you know they're also slightly more the opportunities are slightly more geographically diverse i'd say so i spend a lot of time talking to talking to sort of conduits in in areas where i feel as though there's sort of interesting opportunities whether that's oxford cambridge manchester the west country etc you know so talking to local investors local tech investors there local lawyers who work on tech businesses corporate financiers, that kind of stuff so so they're a bunch of different different sources which which work pretty well at scale. And then one of the other interesting areas that we look at are spin-outs from acquisitive tech companies. So larger businesses will, will buy smaller businesses, work out that the synergies uh, perhaps haven't been there to the extent that, that they have thought. And, and then you find that these companies get spun out for reasonable prices. And that's you know, an important thing to note here, which I'm not sure that I mentioned at the very beginning, but briefly mentioned before, is that you know, what we're looking to do is, is acquire a majority stake in these businesses. And then, you know, from that point in time, provide extra growth capital after that transaction.
0: So you're effectively either partially or fully exiting the current founders or slash owners. And then either keeping them on as management with a with an equity equity kicker, as it were, or exiting them completely. Presumably, you keep them in management positions for a period until you can, you know, find a suitable suitable way out. But you're you're providing you're providing an exit for people who've kind of grown a business to a, a reasonable size and and have decided that it's time for them to do something else and, and are looking for some liquidity. Is that
1: yes? So so broadly, I think that's correct. I mean, if you wanted to just you know, boil it down into into a few words it's sort of micro p for tech but the, the actual situations that we come across are, are quite varied so you were mentioning sort of one, one sort of large category if you like are which is people who've grown their business to to a certain extent and want to move on to to new things either now or, or sometime in the future after a period of time transition which is which is one yeah one sort of scenario that we come across another one that we come across as well it's the is is people literally wanting to sort of retire and, and 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 off into the sunset you know there are a bunch of uh, very interesting businesses with you know long-term clients slightly older tech companies which where you know the founders are, are actually looking to, to move on entirely and uh, not necessarily sort of reload on on new on the next opportunity so it's not just it's not just what you might think of of, of acquiring the, the tech company off the of the young founder who who wants to sort of take the money and go again and and, and
0: run harder the new venture capital opportunity. That sounds more like a trad- that's that's a sort of straightforward private equity style play, but just sort of at a possibly a lower level that a lot of people think of when they think of private equity exiting existing founders. Um, yeah, yeah, interesting. So it's quite a diverse strategy actually in terms of the the approach to companies. And you've got a pipeline. You, you said you've got a pipeline of of potential deals already. Are there specific sectors you're looking in that are interesting, or are you? yeah yeah i mean we we've got a fairly broad strategy which is
1: aligned to ultimately the businesses that we have experience in investing in and operating ourselves so first of all a strong focus on on esg investments and, and in fact for esg investments we we might compromise a little bit on on the degree of tech within it in order to in order to sort of be be genuinely in that market but beyond esg looking for tech businesses those involved in productivity education and hr tech industrial tech and and, and agri-, agri tech as well.
0: Okay, and you're and you're essentially looking for opportunities that are ready to be acquired, uh, that you and your team uh, have the experience and and uh, market knowledge etc. to to add scale to in a way that the existing founding teams can't. So you sort of that's your that's your value add from a capital perspective.
1: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, like a really interesting business that we came across the other day is in a sort of it, it's in a very Specific niche for for CRM software and, and lead nurturing and management, and and I talked to the founder, and and it was it was one of those really great moments when you're sort of setting up on your own, where you had your own value proposition being said back to you, because he was somebody who had been led up the garden path multiple times by venture capitalists who took a look at the, look, took a look at the business, asked him for all all sorts of data, bent him out of shape a bit. I need to only to say, look, great business mate, but it's it's far too small. To market. The market opportunity is far too small. And he said to me, look, and, and he's the owner of the business. He said to me, look, I I'll happily sell the majority stake of this business in order to get some great capital into it, because I know what the opportunity is here. I think the opportunity is you know, big, but it might not be big or interesting enough to a venture capital firm. But you know, if you guys say you know there's a transaction to be made here, and there's some extra growth capital that we can really put to work and and start to 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 grow the business properly, you know, I'm that's a conversation I'm really interested in having. So, so that's a, a, a sort of a good case in point. And you know, to, to 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 talk about like what this business looks like in terms of its rough sort of shape and size is that. They're probably doing roughly about a million quid of revenue. They're roughly doing about sort of two hundred k's worth of a bit of profitability, but reinvesting that into the business. And you know, it's it's a bit of a slow burn. You know, there's only four or five people in the business, and and they don't have a lot of sales activity. The velocity in the product organization and the tech organization is is kind of slow. And these are all things which, you know, the venture capital world has got a lot of learning about. Uh, and you kind of feel as though there might be a great opportunity to bring it to bear in markets that, that are unlikely to yield, uh, you know, nine figure outcomes, but that perhaps might be able to to do something in the seven or eight figures.
0: Okay, fantastic. And so in the process of doing the business as you are at the moment, there's obviously a need for capital. So what are you doing? What's that going to look like? Are you going to have a fund are you going to do kind of club deals on a deal-by-deal basis and what are you doing to put yourself and TikTok in the best position possible to to actually go out and raise funds?
1: Yeah great question so so part of the strategy of of TikTok is that as much as is possible a pretty flexible strategy when it comes to exiting businesses that we invest in. So there are a couple of business models in the US, one very large company called Constellation Software, a much smaller one called Tiny Capital. And they offer more or less permanent capital for their, their businesses and, and can, can hold businesses for forever if they want to and to cash flow them into perpetuity. And that's an opportunity that I would like to, to be able to offer ultimately the companies that we're talking to um, because, like you say, we're talking to sort of owners and operators who who want to see their business endure, rather than perhaps be bought and sold within you know a three year time period. Yeah. Um, you know, others might not care quite so much, but but that's certainly an option that I would like to 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 be able to have for ourselves. So, as a result, doing that in a fund structure where you have a very defined investment period and a very defined realisations period. I think is something which, at least at, at this beginning point, I would like to I'd like to avoid. And so, like you say, doing sort of club deals on a on a deal by deal basis. Um, and in terms of you know what can I do to to put TikTok into in in the best kind of shape to raise that money? You know, I, I think I'm unfortunate I'm in some ways because the the markets and and rising interest rates and and the rest of it have have caused or have necess necessitated an opportunity for people to sort of think again or think twice about that allocation simply to to venture capital within tech investing. I think it's a great time to be acquiring majority stakes versus. Minority stakes and looking for sort of you know growth, which is three x year on year for a number of years, etc. And you know it's a strategy which which in some ways is is somewhat new. You know, this micro P for for tech businesses is somewhat new, but it's not it's not so new as to as to be you know truly sort of out there and and wild and and overly risky. You know, we're looking for businesses which. Like I say, I've got product market fits. We're looking to to bring strategies which are well understood to bear on them. We're operating in a part of the market which doesn't have a great deal of competition, or at least not at the moment. That's if we make success of it, it will. And there are a lot of things which which sort of make sense about it. And I kind of feel as though it's relatively easy to understand as a result. And and that, you know, as a learning for raising capital, regard regardless of whether you're trying to raise a fund or you're doing deals deals on a deal by deal basis, or you're raising money for a start. Startup. One thing which I think is generically true is that if you can't make it sort of simple for people to understand, for, for people to come away for an investment meeting and be like, yeah, I get it. Like that makes a lot of sense. You know,
0: you're running up a steeper hill than otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Absolutely. And in terms of the types of investors you're looking at, it's kind of it sounds like quite family office high net worth type exactly. of investors. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Exactly. That, yeah. Fantastic. Well, you know, looking forward to seeing how, how it progresses and to seeing your, your first deal or deals coming to fruition. It's very exciting and uh, wishing you the very best. When do you think when do you think you will do your first transaction, which I guess is the moment at which you'll probably feel like it's crystallized from end to end? Yeah,
1: yeah. I, mean, I think it's 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 more than likely bear in mind that we're sort of moving into the summer period and, and again raising raising money in, in a general sense. I think it's it's kind of difficult over that period of time i think it's far more likely that uh ordeal will come uh later on this year and you know in terms of the silver model and the strategy we're looking to do sort of one or two a year as a base case for the next yeah uh six seven eight years but you know assuming a little bit of success we'll be doing more than
0: that fantastic i think that's a really good point you just maybe want to finish on but that the timing of of fundraising is 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 quite an important part of the art isn't it because it seems to me that the cycle follows, it kind of follows the school terms in a sense, as with a lot of things uh, do. But, you know, if you're planning out a roadmap of 18 months of runway or whatever, and 18 months lands you in July or August, you probably want to think about extending that by another couple of months at least, not least because you probably spend money faster than you expect to. Most of the startups that we work with find their runway gets a bit shorter as they have more and more clever ideas. But, you know, trying to raise money in July and August is pretty painful. Both for the, for the companies and for the investors, I think people on holiday being asked to sign documents, even on DocuSign being asked to review things, you know, is just uncomfortable and annoying. So to the extent that you're, you're in a position to do so, it feels like, you know, raising funds in the autumn is pretty sensible. Raising funds in the spring, pretty sensible. Mm-hmm. Trying to do something in you know 25th of December is not the day to be circulating <laughs> execution versions. If you want, if you want to keep everyone on side, and not 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 piss everyone off, and especially going into this next six months where it feels, as you said, you know, markets are melting and inflating at the same time, which mm-hmm. seems like a very uncomfortable thing. Our, my experience so far of the end of this half and the begin, of what I guess will be the beginning of Q3, is that it's getting. A lot. The deals are getting harder to close in the sense that they're the weaker deals, or the ones where there is an excuse on the table for someone to walk away, are more likely to fail for being weak or having the excuse available. And some of those excuses may even feel a bit spurious to to the entrepreneurs. But but I think you know investors looking at protecting their their capital, protecting their portfolios, are becoming increasingly conservative and inevitably in a contraction. And so, being more precise about the timing of of your fundraise, the quality of your materials, the the process by which you seek to execute the actual investment from term sheet to to documentation is all pretty important actually, because you don't have the leeway that you might have in, in a sort of free flowing times to you know to, to sort of take your time, think about things, mull things over, make a few careless errors that you know everyone's just sort of brushes under the carpet because they their mind. There just isn't that room. You just have the the, the level of rigor. And intensity in these contracted periods feels like it always goes up and i think people planning to raise funds have to kind of act appropriately and assume that you know act defensively and assume that you know things that they don't quite get right can be can and probably will be held against them by people who are looking for reasons not to, not to invest in in riskier opportunities yeah i think you're exactly
1: right you know it- like you say, at the moment, there are more reasons to back away and to be conservative and for investors to say no to things. So, so being cognizant of that and, and doing the work to, to ultimately not make it harder for yourself, I think is, is, is super important. And, and that does absolutely extend the timing. You know, if you can, you can make sure that you're not hitting, you know, needing cash and doing your fundraise during a holiday time. You know, I think that's something that you you really want to you really want to try and do. It sounds you know a little bit silly and annoying, but I think that's that's absolutely the case. And yeah, to a certain extent, it's a double edged sword, isn't it? Because if you it is possible to raise money outside of, of the sort of main business windows, and in some ways it might seem more attractive to do it because there's less competition. Because what everybody knows that. It's less attractive to do it, but it's definitely better. <laughs> it's definitely better to be doing it in the main business windows where people are, you know, more focused on on doing deals than otherwise and and, and particularly in a downturn. I think that that's that's even more so the case probably than it is usually.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. Matt, thank you so much for being our guinea pig on the first Fundraising Diaries podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you as always and wishing you very much all the best for uh, the next phase with with TikTok. Thank you very much and, and likewise all the best for you and, and the podcast series.
1: Thank you.